Chapters Twenty Three and Twenty Four of the Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Three. Fisher, exactly one week after his nocturnal visit to Fourteenth Street, hurried out of the train at the Pennsylvania station, almost tore the newspapers from the newsstand, glanced through them one by one, and threw them back. The attendant open-mouthed ventured a mild protest. Fisher threw him a dollar bill, caught up his handbag, and made for the entrance. He was the first passenger from the Washington Limited to reach the street and spring into a taxi. "'The Plaza Hotel,' he ordered. "'Get along.' They arrived at the plaza in less than ten minutes. Mr. Fisher tipped the driver lavishly, suffered the hall porter to take his bag, returned his greeting mechanically, and walked with swift haste to the tape machine. He held up the strips with shaking fingers, dropped them again, hurried to the lift, and entered his rooms. Nikosti was in the sitting-room, arranging some flowers. Fisher did not even stop to reply to his reverential greeting. "'Where's Mr. Van Tail?' he demanded. "'Mr. Van Tail has gone away, sir,' was the calm reply. "'He left here the day before yesterday. There is a letter.' Fisher took no notice. He was already gripping the telephone receiver. Nine eight two wall, he said. An urgent call. He stood waiting, his face an epitome of breathless suspense. Soon a voice answered him. That the office of Neville, Brooks, and Van Tail, he demanded. Yes, put me through to Mr. Van Tail. Urgent. Another few seconds of waiting, then once more he bent over the instrument. That you, Van Tail? Yes, Fisher speaking. Oh, never mind about that. Listen. What price are Anglo-French? No. Say, about what? Ninety-five? Sell me a hundred thousand. What's that? What? Of course it's a big deal. Never mind that. I'm good enough, aren't I? There'll be no rise that'll wipe out half a million dollars. I've got that lying in cash at Guggenheimer's. If you need the money, I'll bring it you in half an hour. Get out into the market and sell. Damn you, what's it matter about news? Right. Sorry, Jim. See you later. Fisher put down the telephone and wiped his forehead. Notwithstanding the fatigue in his face, there was a glint of triumph there. He laid his hand upon Nikosti's shoulder. "'My friend,' he said, "'there's big proof coming of what I said to you the other day. You'll find that letter you carry will mean a different thing now. There's news in the air.' "'There has been a great battle, perhaps?' Nikosti asked slowly. "'All that is to be known you will hear before evening,' Fisher replied. Tell someone to send some coffee. I have come through from Washington. I am tired. He sank a little abruptly into an easy chair, took off his spectacles, and leaned his head back against the cushions. In the sunlight his face was almost ghastly. A queer sense of weakness had suddenly assailed him. His mind flitted back through a vista of sleepless nights, of strenuous days, of passions held in leash, excitement ground down. I am tired, he said. Telephone down to the office, Nikosti, for a doctor. Nikosti obeyed, and his summons was promptly answered. The doctor who arrived was pleasantly but ominously grave. In the middle of his examination the telephone rang. Fisher, without ceremony, moved to the receiver. It was Van Tail speaking. I've sold your hundred thousand Anglo-French, he announced. It's done the whole market in, though. Knocked the bottom out of it. They've fallen a point and a half. Shall I begin to buy back for you? You'll make a bit. Not a share, 
Fisher answered fiercely. Wait. Have you any news you're keeping up your sleeve? Van Tail persisted. If I have, it's my own affair, was the curt reply, and I don't tell news over the telephone anyway. Watch the market and go on selling where you can. I shall do as you order, Van Tail replied. But you're all against the general tone here. By the by, you got my letter? I haven't opened it yet, Fisher snapped. What's the matter? Pamela and I have taken a little flat in 58th Street. Seems a little abrupt, but she didn't want to be alone, and she hates hotels. We felt sure you'd understand. Yes, I understand, Fisher said. Good-bye. I'm busy. The doctor completed his examination. When he had finished, he mentioned his fee. You work too hard, and you live in an atmosphere of too great strain. The natural consequences are already beginning to show themselves. If I give you medicine, it will only encourage you to keep on wasting yourself. But you can have medicine if you like. Send me something to take for the next fortnight, Fisher replied. After that, I'll take my chance. The doctor wrote a prescription and took his leave. Fisher leaned back in his chair and closed his eyes. His mind traveled back through these latter days of his over-strenuous life. In such minutes of relaxation, few of which he permitted himself, he realized with bitter completeness the catastrophe which had overtaken him, him, Oscar Fisher, of all men on earth, into his life of grim purposes, of lofty and yet narrow ambitions, of almost superhuman tenacity, had crept the one weakening strain whose presence in other men he had always scoffed at and derived. There was a new and enervating glamour over the days, a new and hatefully powerful rival for all his thoughts and dreams. Ten years ago, he reflected sadly, this might have made a different man of him, might have unlocked the gates into another, more peaceful and beautiful world, visions of which had sometimes vaguely disturbed him in his cold and selfish clime now it could only mean suffering. This was the first stroke. It was the assertion of humanity which was responsible for his present weakness. How far might it not drag him down? There should be a fight at any rate, he told himself, as an hour or two later he made his way downtown. He paid several calls in the vicinity of Wall Street and finished up in Van Tail's office. That young man greeted him with a certain relief. "'You know the tone of the market's still against you, Fisher,' he warned him once more. Fisher threw himself into the client's easy-chair. The furniture in the office seemed less distinct than usual. He was conscious of a certain haziness of outline in everything. Van Tail's face even was shrouded in a little mist. Then suddenly he found himself fighting fiercely, fighting for his consciousness, fighting against a wave of giddiness, a deadly sinking of the heart a strange slackening of all his nerve power. The young stockbroker rose hastily to his feet. "'Nothing wrong, old fellow?' he asked anxiously. "'A glass of water,' Fisher begged. He was conscious of drinking it, vaguely conscious that he was winning. Soon the office had regained its ordinary appearance, his pulse was beating more regularly. He had once more the feeling of living, of living, though in a minor way. "'A touch of liver,' he murmured. What did you say about the markets? You look pretty rotten, Van Tail remarked sympathetically. Shall I send out for some brandy? Not for me, Fisher scoffed. I don't need it. What price are Anglo-French? Ninety-four. You've only done them in a point, after all, 
and that's nominal. I dare say I could get ten thousand back at that. Leave them alone, was the calm reply. I'll sell another fifty thousand at ninety-four. Look here, Van Tail said, swinging round in his chair. I like the business, and I know you can finance it. But are you sure that you realize what you are doing? Everyone believes Anglo-French have touched their bottom. They've only to go back to where they were, say, five points, and you'd lose half a million. Fisher smiled a little wearily. That small sum in arithmetic, he remonstrated, had already passed through my brain. Send in your selling order, Jim, and come out to lunch with me. I've come straight through from Washington. Only got in this morning. Van Tail called in his clerk and gave a few orders. Then he took up his hat and left the office with his client. From Washington, eh? he remarked curiously as they passed into the crowded streets. So that accounts. He broke off abruptly. His companion's warning fingers had tightened upon his arms. Quite right, Van Tail confessed. There's gossip enough about now, and they seem to have tumbled to it that you're our client. The office has been besieged this morning. Sorry, Ned, I'm busy, he went on to a man who tried to catch his arm. See you later, Fred. I'll be in after lunch, Mr. Borodale. No, nothing fresh that I know of. Fisher smiled grimly. Got you into a kind of hornet's nest, eh? he observed. It's been like this all morning, Van Tail told him. They believe I know something. Even the newspaper men are tumbling to it. We'll lunch up at the club. Maybe we'll get a little peace there. They stepped into the hall of a great building and took one of the interminable row of lifts. A few minutes later they were seated at a side table in a dining-room on the top floor of one of the huge modern skyscrapers. Below them stretched a silent panorama of the city, beyond a picturesque view of the river. A fresh breeze blew in through the open window. They were above the noise even of the street-cars. "'Order me a small bottle of champagne, James,' Fisher begged and some steak. Van Tail stared at his companion and laughed as he took up the wine list. Well, that's the first time, Fisher, I've known you to touch a drop of anything before the evening. I'll have a whiskey and soda with you. Thank God we're away from that inquisitive crowd for a few minutes. Are you going to give me an idea of what's moving? Fisher watched the wine being poured into his glass. Not until this evening, he said. I want you to bring your sister and come and dine at the new roof-garden. I don't know whether Pamela has any engagement, Van Tail began, a little dubiously. Please go and see, Fisher begged earnestly. The telephones are just outside. Tell your sister that I particularly wish her to accept my invitation. Tell her that there will be news. Van Tail went out to the telephone. Fisher sipped his champagne and crumbled up his bread his eyes fixed a little dreamily on the gray river. He was already conscious of the glow of the wine in his veins. The sensation was half pleasurable, in a sense distasteful to him. He resented this artificial humanity. He had the feeling of a man who has stooped to be doped by a quack doctor. And he was a little afraid. His young companion returned triumphant. Had a little trouble with Pamela, he observed, as he resumed his place at the table. She was thinking of the opera with a girlfriend she picked up this morning. However, the idea of news, I think, clinched it. We'll be at the Oriental at eight o'clock, eh? Fisher looked up from the fascinating patchwork below. Already there was an anticipation in his face. I am very glad, he said. There will certainly be news. 
End of chapter 23. Chapter 24 Now indeed I feel that I am in New York, Pamela declared as she broke off one of the blossoms of the great cluster of deep red roses by her side, and gazed downward over her shoulder at the far-flung carpet of lights. One sees little bits of America in every country of the world, but never this. Fisher, unusually grave and funereal-looking in his dinner clothes and black tie, followed her gesture with thoughtful eyes. Everything that was ugly in the stretching arms of the city seemed softened, shrouded, and bejeweled. Even the sounds, the rattle and roar of the overhead railways, the clanging of the electric car bells, the shrieking of the sirens upon the river, seemed somehow to have lost their harsh note, to have become the human cry of the great live city, awaking and stretching itself for the night. "'I agree with you,' he said. "'You dine at the Ritz-Carlton, and you might be in Paris. You dine here, and one knows that you are in America.' "'Yet even here we have become increasingly luxurious,' Pamela remarked, looking around. "'The glass and linen upon the tables are quite French. Those shaded lights are exquisite.' That little band, too, was playing at the Ritz three years ago. I am sure that the maitre d'hôtel who brought us to our table was once at the Café de Paris. Money would draw all those things from Europe, even to the Sahara, Fisher observed, so long as there were plenty of it. But millions could not buy our dining-table in the clouds. A little effort of the imagination, fortunately, Pamela laughed, looking upwards. There are stars, but no clouds. I guess one of them is going to slip down to the next table before long, Van Tail observed with a little movement of his head. They all three turned and looked at the wonderful bank of pink roses within a few feet of them. One of the opera women, I dare say, the young man continued. They are rather fond of this place. Pamela leaned forward. Fisher was watching the streets below. Only a short distance away was a huge newspaper building flaring with lights. The pavements fringing it were thronged with a little stationary crowd. A row of motor bicycles was in waiting. A night edition of the paper was almost due. "'Mr. Fisher,' she asked, "'what about the news?' He withdrew his eyes from the street. Almost unconsciously he straightened himself a little in his place. There was pride in his tone. Behind his spectacles his eyes flashed. "'I would have told it you before,' he said but you would not have believed it. Soon, in a very few moments, the news will be known. You will see it break away in waves from that building down there. So I will bear with your incredulity. The German and British fleets have met, and the victory has remained with us. With us? Pamela repeated. With Germany, Fisher corrected himself hastily. Is this true? James Van Tail almost shouted. Fisher, are you sure of what you're saying? Why, that's incredible. It is true, was the proud reply. The German navy has been a long time proving itself. It has done so now. Today every German citizen is the proudest creature breathing. He knew before that his armies were invincible. He knows now that his fleet is destined to make his country the mistress of the seas. England's day is over. Her ships were badly handled and foolishly flung into battle. She has lost many of her finest units. Her navy is today a crippled and maimed force. The German fleet is out in the North Sea, waiting for an enemy who has disappeared. "'It is inconceivable!' Pamela gasped. "'I do not ask you to believe my word,' Fisher exclaimed. "'Look!' 
as though the floodgates had been suddenly opened the stream of patient waiters broke away from the newspaper building below like little fireflies the motor bicycles were tearing down the different thoroughfares boys like ants with their burden of news sheets were running in every direction motor trucks had started on their furious race even the distant echoes of their cries came faintly up fisher called the messenger and sent him for a paper i do not know what report you will see he said but from whatever source it comes it will confirm my story the news is too great and sweeping to be contradicted or ignored if it is true van tail muttered you've made a fortune in my office to-day it looks like it too there was something wrong with anglo-french beside your selling for the last hour this afternoon i couldn't get buyers to listen for a moment yes i shall have made a great deal of money fisher admitted money which i shall value because it comes magnificently but i hope that this victory may help me to win other things he looked fixedly at pamela and she moved uneasily in her chair almost unconsciously the man himself seemed somehow associated with his cause to be assuming a larger and more tolerant place in her thoughts perhaps there was some measure of greatness about him after all the strain of waiting for the papers became almost intolerable at last the boy reappeared the great black headlines were stretched out before her she felt the envelopment of fisher's triumph the words were there in solid type and the paper itself was one of the most reliable great naval battle in the north sea british admiralty admits serious losses queen mary indefatigable and many fine ships lost pamela looked up from the sheet it is too wonderful she whispered with a note of awe in her tone i don't think that anyone ever expected this we all believed in the british navy there is nothing fisher declared that england can do which germany cannot do better and america best of all pamela said fisher bowed that is one comparison which will never now be made he declared for from to-night germany and america will draw nearer together the bubble of british naval omnipotence is pricked meanwhile van tail observed putting his paper away we are neglecting our dinner nothing like a good dose of sensationalism for giving us an appetite fisher was watching his glass being filled with champagne he seized it by the stem his eyes for a moment travelled upwards i am an american citizen he said with a strange fervour in his tone but for the moment i am called back and so i lift my glass and i drink i alone without invitation to you others to those brave souls who have made of the north sea a holy battleground he drained his glass and set it down empty pamela watched him as though fascinated for a single moment she was conscious of a queer sensation of personal pity for some shadowy and absent friend of something almost like a lump in her throat a strange instinct of antagonism towards the man by her side so enveloped in beatific satisfaction then she frowned when she realized that she had been thinking of lutchester that her first impulse had been one of sympathy for him the moment passed the service of dinner was pressed more insistently upon them james van tail who had been leaning back in his chair talking to one of the maitres de hotel dismissed him with a little nod and entrusted them with a confidence say do you know who's coming to the next table he exclaimed sonia they were all interested you won't mind fisher asked diffidently in a restaurant how absurd pamela laughed 
Why, I'm dying to see her. I wonder how it is that some of these greatest singers in the world lead such extraordinary lives that people can never know anything of them. Society is tolerant enough nowadays, her brother observed, but Sonia won't give them even a decent chance to wink at her eccentricities. She crossed, you know, on the Prince Duranda's yacht, for fear they wouldn't let her land. Here she comes, Pamela whispered. There was a moment's spellbound silence. Two maitres de hotel were hurrying in front. A pathway from the lift had been cleared as though for a royal personage. Sonia, in white from head to foot, a dream of white lace and chinchilla, with a Russian crown of pearls in her glossy black hair, and a rope of pearls around her neck, came like a waxen figure, with scarlet lips and flashing eyes, towards her table. And behind her, Lutchester! Pamela felt her fingers gripping the tablecloth. Her first impulse, curiously enough, was one of wild fury with herself for that single instant pity. Her face grew cold and hard. She felt herself sitting a little more upright. Her eyes remained upon the newcomers. Lutchester's behavior was admirable. His glance swept their little table without even a shadow of interest. He ignored with passive unconcern the mistake of Van Tail's attempted greeting. He looked through Fisher as though he had been a ghost. He stood by Sonia's side while she seated herself and listened with courteous pleasure to her excited admiration of the flowers and the wonderful vista. Then he took his own place. In his right hand he was carrying an evening paper with its flaming headlines. That, Fisher pronounced, struggling to keep the joy from his tone, is very British and very magnificent. Pamela had imperfect recollections of the rest of the evening. She remembered that she was more than usually gay throughout dinner-time, but that she was the first to jump at the idea of a hurried departure and a visit to a cabaret. Every now and then she caught a glimpse of Sonia's face, saw the challenging light in her brilliant eyes, heard little scraps of her conversation. The French woman spoke always in her own language, with a rather shrill voice, which made Lutchester's replies sound graver and quieter than usual. More than once Pamela's eyes rested upon the broad lines of his back. He sat all the time like a rock, courteous, at times obviously amusing, but underneath it all she fancied that she saw some signs of the disturbance from which she herself was suffering. She rose to her feet at last with a little sigh of relief. It was an ordeal through which she had passed. Once in the lift her brother and Fisher discussed Lutchester's indiscretion volubly. I suppose, Van Tail declared, that there isn't a man in New York who wouldn't have jumped at the chance of sitting alone with Sonia, but for an Englishman on a night like this, he went on, glancing at the paper, say he must have some nerve, or else, Fisher remarked, a wonderful indifference. So far as I have studied the Anglo-Saxon temperament, I should be inclined to vote for the indifference. That is why I think Germany will win the war. Every man in that country prays for his country's success not only in words, but with his soul. I have not found the same spirit in England. The English people, Pamela interposed, have a genius for concealment which amounts to stupidity. I have a theory, Fisher said, that to be phlegmatic after a certain pitch is a sign of low vitality. However, we shall see. Certainly, if England is to be saved from her present trouble, it will not be the Lutchesters of the world who would do it, nor, it seems, her navy. They found their way to a large cabaret, where Pamela listened to an indifferent performance a little wearily. 
the news of what was termed a naval disaster to Great Britain was flashed upon the screen, and, generally speaking, the audience was stunned. Fisher behaved throughout the evening with tact and discretion. He made few references to the matter, and was careful not to indulge in any undue exhilaration. Once, when Van Tail had left the box, however, to speak to some friends, he turned earnestly to Pamela. "'Will it please you soon,' he begged, "'to resume our conversation of the other day? However you look at it, things have changed, have they not? An invincible British Navy has been one of the fundamental principles of beliefs in American politics. Now that it is destroyed, the outlook is different. I could go myself to the proper quarter in Washington.' or von schwerin is here to be my spokesman i have a fancy though to work with you you know why she moved uneasily in her place i have no idea she objected what it is that you have to propose besides i am only just a woman who has been entrusted with a few diplomatic errands you are the niece of senator hastings fisher reminded her and hastings is the man through whom i should like my proposal to go to the president it is an honest offer which i have to make and although it cannot pass through official channels it is official in the highest sense of the word because it comes to me from the one man who is in a position to make himself responsible for it her brother came back to the box before pamela could reply but as they parted that night she gave fisher her hand come and see our new quarters she invited i shall be at home any time to-morrow afternoon it was one of the moments of Fisher's life. He bowed low over her fingers. I accept with great pleasure, he murmured. End of chapter 24. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.